Our first scripture reading this morning comes to us from the book of Matthew, the 13th chapter, verses 1 to 9. Let's listen together for a word from God. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the lake. Such great crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat there, while the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, Listen, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell on the path, and the birds came and ate them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and they sprang up quickly, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and brought forth grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Let anyone with ears listen. The word of the Lord. This morning's second reading comes to us from the first book in the Bible, the first book in the Hebrew scriptural tradition, Genesis, which means beginnings, this time from the 25th chapter, beginning with the 21st verse. Listen to what the Spirit is saying to you this morning and to the church. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and his wife, Rebekah, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, if it is to be this way, why do I live? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples born of you shall be divided. One shall be stronger than the other. The elder shall serve the younger." When her time to give birth was at hand, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red. All his body was like a hairy mantle. So they named him Esau. Afterwards, his brother came out with his hand gripping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field while Jacob was a quiet man, living in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he was fond of game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking a stew, Esau came in from the field. He was famished. Esau said to his brother Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stuff, for I am famished. Therefore he was called Edom. Jacob said, first, sell me your birthright. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? And Jacob said, swear to me first. So Esau swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. 
May the meditations of our, our hearts this morning, O oh God, be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Our focus this morning is on our Old Testament passage, which is why it is second in sequence this morning. Not all churches do that, by the way. Some churches, some Presbyterian churches, always have the Gospel or New Testament reading at the end. Some even stand when they get there. But a lot of churches, including this one, understand and accept the fact that the witness to God's covenant love, God's steadfast love, is discernible throughout the span of the entire Bible, Hebrew scriptural tradition, as it stands on its own, as well as our New Testament. So we are one of those churches who, who look at the Old Testament uh, as much as the new. Um, by the way, uh, some of you might know, uh, you heard me say that Presbyterians are the only Christian clergy who require their clergy to be proficient, let's say, in Hebrew and Greek. And that is an example of our approach to Scripture. But, but as I was thinking about our both of our texts this morning, and particularly the parable of the sower and what it means to be good soil... Uh, I found it fascinating to realize, once again, that Jesus never criticizes his disciples for their ambition. You'd think he would. Jesus is all about being humble and meek, after all, isn't he? Didn't he talk about that somewhere, on some mountain somewhere at one time? Remember that place in Mark's gospel where the disciples are arguing about who's going to be the greatest? And Jesus doesn't scold them. Instead, he says, if anyone wants to be first, then they must be the very last, the servant of all. It's okay to want to be first. In fact, apparently we should want to be first, but the question is, first in what? These days, a lot is said about the prosperity gospel. You may have heard of that term. And whether or not it's a good thing. Most people in my sort of Presbyterian world kind of scoff at the prosperity gospel and we make a little fun of the gospel even though we're sometimes jealous of their airplanes, the pastors who preach it. Um, but I'd say more people than care to admit it actually embrace some version of the gospel and it goes something like this. I am going to embrace the good news of Jesus Christ as a means of improving my life. Financially is one major area of emphasis in a lot of prosperity gospel churches and from a lot of prosperity gospel pulpits, but also other ways to make me a better parent or husband or wife or whatever it is. Um, I'm going to accept Jesus. I'm going to follow Jesus uh, I'm going to go to church as consistently as I can based on my schedule, uh, and the result of that is I'm going to get my life back on track or keep my life on track and maybe even excel. Better job, better family, better car, better marriage, better airplane. I mean, it really is important to have an airplane when you're a pastor because you've got to go places, right? I don't understand how people do it without an airplane. And the end result is, of the prosperity gospel, is you feel pretty good about yourself if you're pretty good at it um, most of the time because you're getting your act together. You're using Jesus and his gospel as a way of making yourself 
better and living a better life. That, though, can be contrasted with a different kind of gospel. And that gospel goes by different names. But basically, this gospel is not a tool that we use to get better and a tool that we get better and better at using. This gospel is a relationship. And here I would say that the Bible, the scriptural witness from people across almost maybe three centuries, maybe even more, with so many different authors writing from so many different times, inspired by the Spirit, I would say that the great majority of that biblical witness presents faith to us not so much as being a tool in order to get blessing, though that is in there, but far more faith is presented to us as a relationship. Do you see the difference? A tool is something I can control and use. If it doesn't work, I get rid of it and try something else. It is a strategy for managing my life, and plenty of people have used and are using faith as such a tool or a strategy. They, they still do. But a relationship is completely different. Sarah and I have been married 21 years. I just got back from spending nine wonderful days inside two hotel rooms with her and a 17-year-old in planes, in trains, and in automobiles. I can tell you that relationships are not something you can control at all. And that, that, that's what we're presented with in Scripture. Which brings me, as I'm sure you've already guessed, to a car salesman I once knew in Edison, New Jersey. I used to go to his house at Thanksgiving. And, you know, there are certain professions where once they figure out what you do, they start asking questions that they've always wanted to ask. Ministry is one of those professions. Doctors, physicians, they're one of those professions. But I think car salesmen are really one of those Professions. You know, if you're a doctor, people always pull you aside and they go, hey, my knee's kind of sore. Or when you're a minister, they find out and then they pull you aside and they say, hey, well, I have my Audi in heaven. I'd really like to know, you know. Um, I pulled this guy aside at one Thanksgiving and said, when I go to buy a car, which I hate doing, how do I know I'm getting a good deal between us? And he looked at me and smiled and said, Greg, a good deal is a deal you feel good about. A good deal is a deal you feel good about. Fair enough. At first, I didn't like the answer, but as I thought about it, it made more and more sense to me. If I want that car badly enough, I'm going to make it a good deal over the life of the car. If I want that relationship deeply enough, I'm going to do everything I can to contribute to making it work. A good deal is a deal you feel good about. Which brings me now to this very first appearance on the biblical stage of the Bible's first set of twins, Esau and Jacob. The sons of Isaac, grandsons of Abraham, sons of Rebekah, grandsons of Sarah. Esau and Jacob were twins, but hardly identical twins. Not at all. They didn't resemble each other physically or in any other way. 
They couldn't have been more opposite, in fact. Esau grew up as a hunter, what they would have said in the less inclusive, politically correct days, a man's man. Think Charlton Heston and John Wayne combined with Muhammad Ali, just like, right? Outdoorsy, self-sufficient, and daddy's favorite. Jacob was a quiet home buddy, read Jane Austen, probably, right? His skin was smooth while his older brother Esau's, his twin older brother's, was rough and hairy and red. But Jacob was quiet and cunning and observant and a striver and always looking for an angle and a way to get ahead. But twins are no twins. Esau held the honor of being the eldest son which, as the eldest son, I must say, is an important honor to hold. As such, in those days, not so much today, it was understood, it was a given, that Esau automatically received all the blessings that were denied to any other children of his father, Isaac. He would receive a double portion of the family estate. He would inherit all of his father's positions or titles. And since Isaac by virtue of being Abraham's son, was in covenant relationship with the living God, this was also part of Esau's unique inheritance. And in this famous story from today's lesson, we see Esau fritter it all away. Jacob is home, as he always is. He's cooking. Come on, man. Cooking? In the biblical times, no wonder he was his mother's favorite in that time. Esau comes in from open country. He's probably out, been out chopping wood or wrestling with a camel or raising up a barn all by himself like MacGyver with a piece of gum and a string or something. He goes, hey, little bro, give me some of that stew. I'm starving over here. And Jacob replies, first, give me your birthright and all that's coming to you. And Esau's like, look, little bro, little dude, I'm about to die here. I'm starving, so whatever. I am so hungry. I don't care what it takes. What use is all of that to me now? I need to eat right here and right now. And Jacob says, bro, dude, don't worry. I get it. This is how my son talks to his friends. I'm just trying to be like that. But swear to me first, on your honor, no fingers crossed, are you going to give me your birthright if I give you this stew? And so Esau does. He swears an oath, even, and sells his birthright to his younger brother, Jacob, for a meal. It's one of the best-known and most lopsided trades in history. Worse than the Minnesota Vikings trading her, uh, everything they had to, her, to the Dallas Cowboys for Herschel Walker, which gave the Cowboys so many first-round draft choices that they won the Super Bowl three out of four years. Who's counting? I mean, who cares about that, right? Just, just saying. This is a worse trade. Jacob, the younger twin, tricks his older brother, and this leaves a terrible blot, according to the Hebrew biblical witness on Esau's name and on his descendant's name. But Esau wasn't the last human being 
the last person on the planet to make this kind of bad trade. How often do all of us trade the best of ourselves, what really matters to us, for something of far lesser value that in the moment seems so important to us when we're stressed out, when we're short on time, when we just don't know what else we can do in that moment. We even trade our integrity, even our name, like Esau. I've heard and read that there are two philosophies in life. There's the I'll do whatever philosophy, and then there's the I'll do whatever it takes philosophy. Esau embodied the I'll do whatever philosophy. What was important to him stops being important when things get hard or uncertain or even when he starts worrying about things down the road. We start out with the best of intentions, don't we? But pretty soon, so much of the time, we're saying, I'll do whatever, just give me what I want right now so I can fill my stomach, fill my checking account, fill my sense of security, my sense of well-being. Esau says, whatever, or in the words of the writer of Genesis, give me that bowl of stew, what good is my birthright to me? His brother Jacob, on the other hand, embodies the whatever it takes philosophy, often to excess. Jacob was no saint, by the way. Like many competitive people, cunning people, Jacob cuts corners whenever he can, wherever he can. He lets people down all the time in Scripture. But Jacob is motivated. you got to give him that. He is sneaky. And not just here in this story. Jacob is devious. He is, a lot of the time, selfish and self-centered. But Jacob was always all in. If you look at the stories, this Jacob cycle in scriptures, in Genesis, you will see that Jacob is always all in, and apparently that's all God ever wanted from him. And so it is Jacob, not his goody two-shoes, studly, father's favorite older brother Esau, who's going to wrestle with God his entire life, and even at one point be given a new name, Israel, which basically means strives with, wrestles with, fights with God. That's what Israel means. That's who Jacob is. And that's what faith means in Scripture. Old Testament and new. Not perfection, not prosperity. It means a commitment to a relationship. And that's what a relationship is. It's about commitment. You get something, definitely, but you always have to give too. It's mutual. That's an attitude that we bring to life, to our relationships, isn't it? Certainly to our relationship with God. Life is all about attitude. And the secret to being good soil then is our attitude, our willingness to commit to this relationship, not our virtue or our moral superiority or our moral victories of recent uh, in recent weeks or days or months. Attitude is everything. But having a good attitude is hard. At least having a consistently good attitude is a challenge. The other day I was uh, thinking about this and flicking around online and I found something called the Cynic's Guide to Life. I don't know if you've 
found this, but it's kind of a takeoff on life's familiar cliches, and it's sort of refreshing because those cliches can get a little annoying at times. Because any relationship, if we're honest, is hard. But anything worthwhile is hard, right? So here's the cynic's guide to life. A journey of a thousand miles, it is said, begins with a first step, right? Not on the cynic's guide to life. A journey of a thousand miles begins with a broken fan belt and a leaky tire. Here's another one. I believe for every drop of rain that falls, a flower grows. And as we know in church, a foundation leaks and a ball game gets, gets rained out and a car rusts and you get the idea. Follow your dream, it is said, unless it's the one where you're at work in your underwear during a fire drill. Do not walk behind me, for I may not lead. Do not walk ahead of me, for I may not follow. Do not walk beside me either. Just leave me alone. Let me walk by myself. It's always darkest before the dawn. So, so if you're going to steal your neighbor's newspaper, that's the time to do it. Keep your nose to the grindstone. It's cheaper than plastic surgery. And finally, this land is your land, this land is my land, so stay on your land, please. Not everybody has a great attitude, not everybody can always be up, always be prosperous and blessed and feeling good. That's not what being a person of faith or living a life of faith is all about. It's our attitude, that's what it's all about. It, that attitude can determine whether or not we respond to the good news of the gospel, the sovereign grace of our, the living God through Jesus Christ. That's, that response is the good soil that Jesus is talking about when he stands in that boat when the crowds are so heavy and tells them this, this parable of the sower. And it's that commitment, that attitude that Jacob embodies in his life. Not perfect, not even good a lot of the time, but he grabs on his, his relationship with God, and Jacob refuses to let go. And that's the secret. The quote in our bulletin this morning is from the author Octavia Butler in her book, The Parable of the Sower. The Parable of the Sower, the book by Octavia Butler, which is a novel, was adapted into an opera by the American folk blues musician Toshi Reagan in collaboration with her mother, the famous singer and composer Bernice Johnson Reagan. The libretto and the musical score combine African-American spiritual soul, rock and roll, and folk music to this sort of incredible perspective on this ancient story. But here's the quote. Prodigy is, at its essence, adaptability and persistent positive obsession. Without persistence, what remains is the enthusiasm of the moment Without adaptability, what remains may be channeled into destructive fanaticism. Without positive obsession, there is nothing at all. Grab on to this relationship with God offered to you and me through Jesus Christ and hold on with all you have. You don't need to understand it completely. You don't need to be good at it. You simply need to be all in. The best ability, they say, is availability. And that couldn't be more true. Commitment is, indeed, another word for faith. We just have to trust that what, our what we're committing ourselves to, the one to whom we are committing ourselves, 
is where we truly belong. And it is. Amen.